Hello, welcome to episode 30 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray steering the ship as we sail headlong into month five of a year that I think we can safely say many will be keen to see the back of. Lots of talk about restrictions beginning to be eased in many parts of the world and golf back on the agenda for lots of people. If Twitter's any guide, most of them are pretty happy about that. Among those who won't be returning to golf anytime soon, however, are professionals who ply their trade on the European tour and by default... That also means those who carry their bags are out of work for the foreseeable future. In just a moment, long-time Australian caddy Adam Drummond will join us from his base in London. But before that, let me bring in my co-host Adrian Logue, who's no doubt rugged up on what is a chilly morning here in Sydney. The weather's starting to turn wintry in earnest. Logue, I'm picturing you in a cardigan for some reason. Am I close? Uh, the cardigan would be the second layer I've got. I've got, like, I'm fest- I'm basically draped in velvet on top of that. <laughs> You've gone Costanza. <laughs> I've gone full Costanza. I've, I've had a tough time this morning trying to work a beanie over the top of the over-the-here headphones. That doesn't really work. It is really cold. I've got quite an elaborate setup here, but I'm I'm pretty toasty and ready to go. And, and quite sudden, too. Last week was quite warm. Even yesterday it wasn't too bad, but this morning, yes, we're down into the, uh, the single digits. Now, the reason I mentioned the cardigan, Adrian... This is one of these uh, lovely complex segues yes. that I've been working yes. on the last what, what, couple of weeks. Well, if, now, you know, if only there was a website where you could buy cardigans. Well, funny you should say that. I was on Twitter earlier this morning, and I saw a link to Instagram from Justin Thomas. You know Justin Thomas. Yes. Major winner. Good play. Now, he posted a video of a match that he had with Ricky Fowler. They're both playing Persimmon Blades and Ballada, which is actually pretty interesting. We might talk about that shortly. But the thing about Thomas is that, like you, Logue, he's a cardigan wearer. Yes, but he's also... I, I'm not flattered by the comparison, but yes. <laughs> Continue. Unlike you, he swings it well and hits it where he's looking. Um, he's not just a cardigan wearer, though. He's a brand ambassador for Ralph Lauren. Now, do you know who's a distributor of Ralph Lauren? I, I don't know. If, is there a distributor of Ralph Lauren in there Australia? There is, and it, it happens to be our good friends at the Golf Society. So regular listeners know the drill with thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. You go there and you get a discount off your first purchase. Now, winter's bearing down us. There's plenty of new stock to choose from. Though, interestingly, I had a look this morning. I couldn't see a cardigan. I searched the term cardigan. No joy. And I had a look in some of the outerwear. Couldn't find any cardigans. I'll have a chat to Aaron. There's lots of other that. stylish outerwear. But there's that plenty is an of acceptable that. substitute for cardigans. <laughs> That's exactly but, right. Rod, uh, if only there was a word that you could enter into that website to get a bit of a discount. Now, it's funny you should say that, Adrian, because, of course, the golfsociety.com.au forward slash golf is, in fact, what you need to do. Uh, all sorts of stuff there. Obviously, Ralph Lauren, Hugo Boss, Travis Matthews, shoes from G4, Nike, Adidas, accessories, belts, hats, gloves. Uh, it's a real plethora of top-notch apparel at the golfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. just the one G in talking Golf. Grab some top-quality golf apparel today. I think that's about as obtuse as I can get with the segues. So that game is ending this week, and next week we'll be back to just standard Good introduction <laughs> of the network spot. So check out the talking Golf Network while you're uh, while you're in your travels. Uh, lots of good, do- good golf podcasts over there. Dr. T- Dr. P on the tee with Dr. P releasing an episode Easy last week. Which yeah, it's right easy for me to say, which is a good bit of fun. I've got to tell you, I'm keen to have a round of golf with Dr. P's mum. Yeah. She, she sounds an absolute hoot. Uh, so get on over, check that out, see how you go. Uh, there's also the Blind Shots podcast, Talk Golf History with Connor Lewis, who's in the middle of moving house, but isn't slowing down on the podcast. So don't be, uh, don't be worried if that's one of your favourites. Let's get on with today's show. Oh, before we go, where can we find you, Logue? And me. Uh, I'm, I'm at... Adrian Logue on Twitter and at Adrian Logue on Instagram and adrianlogue.com. 
And uh, and Rod, I believe you can be found at at Rod underscore Mori on Twitter. And that is exactly where I can be found, and not on Instagram. Although I am there, I just don't post anything there. You won't find me on Facebook, though I am there. I just don't post anything there. Twitter's the go. So you can send me a message there. You can send me an email, right at talkinggolf.com. Look, enough of all that. It's not what we came together to talk about. Let's get on with today's show. Aside from those in Victoria and the Northern Territory, most of us in Australia have been able to play golf, should we so choose, but that's not been the case in the UK. That's bad enough for those of us who like to play recreationally. It's been doubly hard on those who play the game for a living, and you can amp that up by a factor of two or three for those who earn their keep caddying for a living. Adam Dr- Adam Drummond is in the ladder camp. He joins us from a base, his base in London. Adam, good to have you with us. Uh, when was the last time you touched a golf club or indeed went outside? It's pretty hardcore, the restrictions well, there in the UK. Yeah, a little bit. We can still go outside. You're allowed to go outside to exercise once a day, uh, go out do shopping, or if you need to go to the hospital or doctor or something like that. Um which means my exercise goes for about four and a half hours, really. Go for a walk around London. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing about 20 kilometres a day at the moment. Um, so the last time I touched a club, uh, well, I had the bag on my shoulder in Qatar, which was the first week of March, and uh, that's when Keith Pelley was walking up and down the range telling us about the, the latest situations of Kenya being cancelled and then India looking unlikely and uh, whichever was next. So uh, that was the last time I suppose I carried a bag in anger. Um, apart from that, flew back to London, where I live now. Uh, I'm southwest London. Uh, I'm married to a uh, girl here now, so uh, this is my base. Uh, yeah, we've just been inside the house. Uh, she's working from home, which is nice. Uh, that keeps the wall from the door for a little bit. Um, I'm just trying to occupy my time with uh, not going slightly insane. Um, I've got a couple of golf courses nearby, uh, but yeah, we can't set foot on them at the moment. Um, there's not, not even a thought of that at the moment either, just by the, uh, the local regulations. I mean, I think it's going to be at least two weeks till there's a decision on maybe going out to see your mum and dad if you're from this part of the world. So uh, it's been a while. Yeah, might be one of the worst hit parts of the world, UK and England there especially. What does that do when Keith Pelly wanders up and down the range? And at that time, can you take yourself back? What was the general thinking on people? Were people mostly thinking, oh, it'll be a couple of events and then we'll be back into it? Did anybody realise, because the European Tour, I know the US Tour is talking about going back in June, best of luck with that. <laughs> European Tour have suggested a best-case scenario of September, but I imagine the chatter would suggest possibly even later than that. Oh, back to... Um Qatar, I suppose Oman was the week before, and there were a couple of Italian players that uh, had turned up, and this is obviously when uh, the disease was uh, going rife through uh, Italy first and foremost, and uh, people were worried about them. They were, they were stuck in their hotel rooms getting tested. Uh, there was a lot of chat about it then, what this might mean for the upcoming tournaments, because uh, that time of year in Europe, of course, we travel a lot. We're not uh, in Europe as such, so... Uh, uh, the complications that come with that, and uh, plus, I suppose, the, the places where we're going, because you've got populations in India or um, wherever we might be going where it just could go uh, bonkers. So uh, it was so unknown back then as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're all hoping that we could go back for six, seven weeks. It might sort itself out and we might be able to get back on the uh, back on the tee in Valderrama, I think, was the tournament we're all looking maybe forward to getting to. Then, of course, kicks off in Spain. So that wasn't ever a thought. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you talk about PGA Tour going back pretty soon, I think that's optimistic uh, at best. Uh, I Border, see, borderline see irresponsible, it, let's be honest, Adam. To be, well, yeah, true. To um, I mean, I, I see it as a bit of a, a European Tour is obviously in a very difficult position because of uh, the, the travel that's involved in between countries and people from so many different countries playing on the Tour. 
and not just playing, but involved in every aspect of it. And I'm not just talking about myself, but everyone else. So uh, logistically, it's going to be a bit of a nightmare. So uh, look, I mean, we're hoping like all hell that they they could possibly get three or four tournaments together in the UK in September, which is a uh, a bit of loose talk about that. Um, I think because the borders are still open here for people to arrive, even if you had to go into quarantine, that's an option. Because if you're going into Spain, well, you're straight into quarantine, but you can't even get into the country unless you're from certain countries or you have certain reasons to be there. And I think golf not being a priority at the moment, um, that's going to hold that back. But, yeah, there, there is this talk about the, the UK possibly having tournaments, you know, Valderrama and British Masters and things like that. But <laughs> if I have to be completely honest, my head's not really been thinking about golf a lot lately because it's um, it just seems like a million miles away at the yeah. moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, that's, uh, that's just where we are. In my yeah. other life, I produce podcasts, various podcasts. People. One of the ones I do is about is uh, got a bunch of guys who do a podcast about MotoGP, and they mentioned on their last episode, which was their first for quite a while, because it like like bit like European Tour golf travels the world on a weekly basis, and that just all of a sudden ended. They were saying the ratio of people per rider to stage an event is about sixteen. There's about sixteen various staff required for every rider in a MotoGP race. So if there's 50 in the field, times it by 16, that's the minimum you need. We probably haven't got a number for golf, Adam, but it probably isn't a long way short of that, is it? When you take in broadcasters, caddies, you've got all the players. Shot link. Shot, shot link. <laughs> shot, They've got to be allowed in. Shot link. Yeah, we, but, you know, all of the, shot the technical Europe stuff. Yet, but, uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, there's There are a lot of people involved. Um, I suppose the cynical could say there's a few charlatans out there, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, yeah. There are a lot of people involved, and there had been a lot of people involved for a long time. And I think it's clearly everything's going to change quite a lot because uh, uh, we just don't know what uh, this is going to look like at the end of this. So there might be fewer people doing certain roles. I mean, there's talk about, you know, caddies not actually doing much, no, certainly not touching bunker rakes or flags and other people coming in to do that. It's, uh, God, it's, it, it's hard to get your head around what it might actually be like. But, mm. um, I sort of try not to tempt myself with the thought because it seems so far away at the moment. I'd, I'd just be so grateful if it could happen because, yeah, to be honest, there's a, there's a lot other bigger things going on in the world. It's pretty I mean, unimportant, uh, isn't it? Uh. I mean, look, I'm, I'm lucky where I am. I mean, I'm in a really good part of London. My, my wife's still working. Um, there's plenty of food in the supermarkets. Uh, I live at the bottom end of Richmond Park, if anyone knows London at all. Uh, it's, a, it's an enormous park with deer through it, enormous trees, uh, tracks, Places to go and do your exercise, walk about. Uh, it's it's a good, really good part of the world, and uh, I'm lucky. Um, I mean, you, you guys are both in Sydney, aren't you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, oh, and I just right. said about yeah. cardigans and things Outskirts. like that. Yeah, there's well, there's no cardigans or anything here, here at the moment. There's, there's shorts and t-shirts. The weather's <laughs> been glorious, <laughs> which is annoying if you want to play golf. But you know, things are pretty good. I, I can't complain. No, and clearly, as we said, golf is fairly unimportant, although, as with every other part of society, at some point we've got to con confront and plan how things start to go back. The world can't, as we've set it up, can't live without economics. Sport is a huge part of economics in the Western world, uh, like it or not. It really is big business, and golf is not a small business either, so there is some uh, sense to considering how things might go back. What's the chatter amongst your peers, Adam, if any? Uh, I imagine, like all of us, there's all sorts of speculation going on. Are any of them particularly switched on who you'd think, mm, I like their, I like the way they think and what they're saying makes some sense to me? Or is there people, are people not just talking about it? We'll come to some of the charity stuff that Ian Finnis and others have been doing shortly, but just generally speaking about the possibility of going back to golf, are you guys talking amongst yourselves? Uh, 
probably not a lot of that. I think we're all we're all optimistic. I think it's part of the job that we have to uh, maintain a positive sort of nature about ourselves. We can be very cynical too, but uh, particularly situations like this, you um, you want to say positive that we will be doing this again. Uh, we just don't know when, and I don't think we. Uh, I think the chat is more about. Um, there's certainly been a lot of reminiscing about you know this this week we should be in Spain or that week we should be wherever and uh, can't wait to get back to that golf course or back to that little bar that we all hang out on the uh, Tuesday afternoon and have a couple of drinks or uh, the nightmare of travel between tournaments. There's a lot of that reminiscing going on. I suppose that's in a lot of a lot of fields around the world who are with people who, who don't work a lot and uh, and miss their jobs. So and I'm I'm lucky. I I love my job and uh, I think a lot of caddies are thinking along those lines and not so much about uh, when the next tournament will be. I think we'll just all be happy when we get a phone call to say you're ready to go and uh, to be given that opportunity. Um, yeah, I think we're just trying not to tempt ourselves. I mean, just if, even trying to think about getting on a plane at the moment just seems so far away from uh, the reality we're living in at the moment that uh, I find it hard to find it hard to really think about it. Hopefully I'm ready for it when it does happen again. I don't, I don't forget how to do it. I mean, I've been doing it for 21 years professionally, but uh, uh, hopefully I don't forget everything. But, um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it seems just a million miles away from the reality that we're in. But, um, yeah, I think there's a hope there. There's, there's still the hope that one day we'll be back doing it. We'll all we'll be a bit possibly fatter and hairier than we are now, but, uh, we'll, but we'll be doing it again. Walking 20 kilometres a day, I... I doubt there's much uh, possibility of that in your case. Um, based in okay, London... I'll tell you, just quickly quickly on yep. that. 21 k's I did the other day, I had to hop, drop a, um, a, a hire car off. I uh, had to do something. And walked home the long way. So it was just over 20 k's. I passed 53 pubs. It was so sad. <laughs> Every single... That, is, that might all be those, the cruelest thing of all. All those fish oh, and chips yeah. aren't going to eat themselves. That's right. Uh, I wrote down every name of them and I looked at them thinking there's a great little beer garden there. It faces uh, south as well in the summer time. That'd be great to go to. Oh, it was here. Sorry, yeah, go on. Hang on. Are you suggesting you're familiar with all 53, intimately familiar, Adam, that you know what each looks like inside? Is that what you're telling us? I think it's a plan to be at the end of this. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a goal. Um, well, there's a, as you know, there's a lot of pubs in uh, in this part of the world. So, um, but yeah. In, but, uh, in London, yeah. 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 Sorry, sorry, I, I guess being based in yeah. London, there's if the European tour is to return, it seems most likely that they could have a little circuit in London, in that that area, in that general area in England and the UK. Yeah. Uh, is that um, well, I guess that you know that's one positive for you. Uh, it's it's just terrible for the international players though who aren't. If it does return this year, it just seems incredibly unlikely that travel will be allowed, international travel, and especially international travel without quarantine. That just makes the whole thing impractical. And it does. And I'm not sure how the US tour is going to uh, cope with that. It just seems like they're dreaming. They're going to buy up all the tests, Adrian. One million of them, they reckon. Right. They take a million tests <laughs> out of the marketplace so that uh, Tiger and Rory can, you know. They're not just going to take them. temperatures or something? I heard. I, I got the feeling it was going to be a little bit half-assed. But the uh, the the thing I'm wondering is if we'll see a bit of a return to, you know, the situation where individual countries have their own their own sort of isolated tour and, and you have some opportunities for some local players to play a bigger events. Well, the, sure, the purses will be a lot smaller, but, you know, I recall 
uh, in Australia when the Australasian tour was a pretty big deal and uh, all the state opens were televised on TV and you had the usual faces and there was a really healthy uh, uh, sort of system for, for young players to compete in pretty big events every week and maybe even, you know, appear on TV and win a high-profile uh, event on TV uh, and then graduate to other tours. But you could you could play quite a lot of golf just staying in the one spot. Is, would there be would it really be that bad if we return to that rather than glomming all of these individual tours together and and having this colossal European tour um, wagon that travels from country to country every week and has this enormous expense? To. I think it kind of has to with you know, restrictions on where we can go. Uh, I think that, and we don't know where money might come from for tournaments. Yeah, you know, and I think. Even using the word tournament might be a bit loose. I think it might be just a gathering of players. Well, I actually know that my boss, so my, I work for a Danish golfer um, called JB Hansen. Um, they went into a lockdown uh, pretty quickly in Denmark, um, and they're just starting to come out of things now. The uh, Some kids can go back to nurseries. Uh, they can play golf. Um, there's a few other restrictions that have been lifted. I think they can group in uh, of, uh, gathering groups of 10 so um, he and a few of the other Danish golfers got together the other day and just sort of kicked some money in together and said, let's have a bit of fun and you know, play for, I don't know, all of 20 euros or whatever it might be. I think that's sort of going to be the, the, the start of something. And then from there, maybe getting the local pros together to play in an event, you know, prize money or not, though, just to play in something because they're all, look, they're all competitive beasts and they just want to play against each other, beat each other, beat themselves, whatever. Um, I think it has to start from there, and then eventually, when things uh, open up, uh, as in cross-border uh, restrictions, um, and then on on the back of that, trying to find money to get a sponsor together to get a decent tournament to justify all your travel, um, I think it has to go that yeah. way. It's it, well, yeah, yeah, you're right. Which and if it was to grow organically, might not necessarily be a bad thing. But I just want to take you to the bigger picture of that, Adam. There's been a bit of it. We yeah. chatted about it on another podcast I do recently. The European Tour looks to be in an extraordinarily precarious position. They've laid off staff or furloughed staff from Tour headquarters. Pelly and the executive team have all taken pay cuts. He's been pretty clear that the European Tour is not going to look like the European Tour of the last decade when it does return. Uh, have you? Do you guys give much thought to those sorts of big picture things? The chatter has been for a long time that the PGA Tour should, could and might be interested in taking over the European Tour. Do those issues filter down? To your level, or do the players and caddies generally turn up and their responsibility is to put on the best golf show they can, whoever might be running it and wherever it might be? Um, I've, I've certainly got an interest in all of that sort of stuff. And uh, I'll, you look to the US Tour, what they do, you look at uh, – I, I do look more at Europe, of course, because I do uh, – I'm a trade here at the moment. Um, by choice? Sorry, so, by choice? Do caddies like um, players want to get to America? There's more money there, obviously. Oh, yeah. Oh, clearly. I mean, yeah, and you want to be involved in the best – in the best sporting events that you can be. And, you know, if I was involved in cricket, I'd want to be going to Ashes Tests and uh, test tours of India and things like that. Um, but, I'd look, I, I do love Europe. Um, I've I've loved it, as I said, 21 years I've been doing it. And uh, the travel that we have had, the, uh, the destinations that we go to, um, I'm not saying all the golf courses are great, but uh, Europe as a, uh, as a place is, uh, is terrific. Um, Clearly, I'm married here as well, so uh, that that keeps me closer to here. Uh, but that's not to say that I, I haven't wanted to, and I have. I have worked uh, PGA Tour and majors for players in the past too. So it's not like it's a, 
a thing that's a million miles or you know, untouchable for me, not at all. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do look at the PGA Tour, and I think that they're going to be they're going to do all right because I think they're probably going to have the money for tournaments in the future. They will find the money. Um, Europe, on the other hand, might struggle. The, the Ryder Cup is everything, and this meant to be a Ryder Cup year is when they probably cash their chips in. Um, and uh, and make their money for the next couple of years. Uh, they're uh, they're going to struggle a little bit on the back of that. Uh, maybe they're going to come up with other little solutions. Uh, I did hear the LPGA potentially uh, some sponsors from the earlier tournaments that haven't been uh, played are going to pour that money into tournaments at the back end of the year. So you might have two uh, major sponsors for a, for a tournament. Maybe something like that could happen in Europe. Uh, don't know. It's a uh, it's um, it's sort of thing you, you try to keep on top of, but uh, I talk to my player maybe once or twice a week just to honestly just to check in to see how he's doing because I'm sure he's itching to get out and play. But uh, he tells me everything that he's hearing through the tour as well. So uh, I think we're uh, we're kept in light of everything that is going on. Does he have any news of Thorborn Ollison? <laughs> really? uh, Tor- uh, we haven't heard of uh, Thorborn I mean, for a long time. Well, the thing is, I mean, ironically, I probably. I live closer to Torbjorn than he does. Uh, he's, he's just outside of Copenhagen, and I think Torbjorn's oh. in London somewhere. So, um, no, I, there hasn't been a lot of uh, chatter from uh, how Torbjorn is. Um, there's a couple of guys who have spoken to him, and they say he's doing okay. But, uh, of course, he, I think it's geez, that's coming up pretty soon. I think that's end of May. I think that might be uh, that might be happening. So uh, there hasn't been a lot of chatter about that, and I just have to wait and see what happens, really. I can't, I can't really go into and it myself because I don't know enough about it and I think it'd be speculative anyway and it'd be a bit unfair on everyone involved. Indeed, including Torbjorn. We're all about the speculation here. (laughs) Speculation is what we do. That's right. We're journalists. That's that's kind of our job. Uh, Honestly, I don't don't know any more than anyone else does on the whole I'll just say this. Um, I've encountered Torbjorn twice, once in Perth. He came down to play uh, and he played in the World Cup down here at King's And what a fantastic addition to the game and it'll be a real shame oh, he's look. lost to the game in the longer yeah. term because I, I know oh. there was an incident and all that sort of stuff but the dealings i've had with him he's been fantastic for the game uh, oh yeah, yeah I've, look we practice rounds and all that sort of stuff together too and yeah he, you know he's a cracking lad, lad and who knows who knows what's happened then on really good on player day. too will do, yeah. it's a really yeah. good player <laughs> yeah with a yeah, cracking player. i mean really good attitude you know aggressive um uh, really backs himself, and I think yeah, that's what we want to see in players. And, uh, he gets on the yeah. darts. It's an unusual look in this day, but an age. But gets on the darts, or he did when he was back in Perth. And there's you can't oh, no, endorse it, but there's something about it, isn't there? <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, I think he, he didn't grow up in the in the nicest area of um, Copenhagen. So uh, I remember when I was working for Soren Hansen back in about two thousand and four or five or something like that, and he uh, said, "This young kid, and he's he said he's a bit ghetto. He's a bit." Uh, uh, you know, he smokes and he drinks and he listens to you know dodgy music and um, you know, he's got a bit of attitude about him, but he's going to be really good. So uh, keep your eyes out, uh, keep your ears out, open for him. Um, yeah, he's going to be very, very good. And uh, he's, yeah, clearly he's a he's a very good player. He's, uh, yeah, you're right though. Now, mind you, there's a lot, of, a lot of European tour players do smoke. <laughs> yeah. Spanish and French players, they they do like <laughs> pulling on a. 
Oh, data every now and then. You don't see it on the TV. They've uh, they've eliminated it from the game, which leads me to something that I wanted to ask about when we were just chatting a minute ago, the whole PGA Tour taking over the European Tour, those sorts of things, and the differences between the two. We know the European Tour looks much more like the PGA Tour than it used to. If you talk to Mike Clayton about the European Tour in the 80s and 90s, it was a very different kind of thing, right from the courses that they played and the style of courses up to the way the tournaments were run. You know, now it's all courtesy cars and player lounges and all those sorts of things. None of that was really true, sort of 80s, 90s. It's been a fairly recent thing. The criticism that we make on this show and others about the PGA Tour is that it has homogenised the game. Every week essentially looks the same. Uh, The courses seem to play the same, and that's what the players want. The greens are the same speed. The sand is the same consistency in the bunkers. The courses are all set up very similar. Uh, what's been your experience of the difference between professional golf between the two, and have they come closer together? I, I watched the European Tour these last couple of years, and it certainly looks a lot more like the US Tour perhaps than it used to. Uh, and are those things a good thing for the ultimately for the game? I think you're right about uh, the players having a lot of pull and a lot of say in what happens on the PGA Tour. Um, the courses are set up very, very. Yeah, you know, they. Look they're, look, they're clearly the best players in the world and they can adapt, or the very best of the best can adapt to anything. Uh, the ones who maybe get on there and do very, very well for a while don't feel so comfortable if things are outside of what they're used to, you know, greens at a certain speed or rough at a certain gradient or whatever. And and perhaps they don't travel as much. And I'm not just saying to Europe or to Japan or to Asia or anywhere. I'm just saying certain weeks they just say, I don't love that golf course, I don't love the way I play, so they don't bother. That's a nice place to be when you're playing for God knows how many million every single week. Um, European tour players just have they have to take the starts that they can get, um, and you don't see too many guys not or choosing not to play a tournament because they don't like it. It's more because it doesn't fit in with a schedule of five weeks in a row of travelling. Um, when it comes to the golf courses, as we know, money talks, so uh, it's not necessarily going to be the best golf course in town. Uh, I think. The setups are very different, though. Week to week, very, very different because you just Mother Nature plays such a big part of it in Europe. Um, you'll have incredibly soft greens where you're, you're trying to chip a pitching wedge from 90 metres where they might normally get it about 125 just to take the spin off the ball. But then the following week, uh, they might have redesigned greens and they might be a little bit firm and crusty underfoot. You, know, you have to play and you have to adapt your game a lot to it. Um, I'm not saying that the courses are all the time great to do this either. They might be in poor condition, but uh, you're seeing, I think you're seeing a lot of European guys who are just finding a way to, seeing a lot of first-time winners, just to find, just wanting to win, really, just, and they'll find, they'll just do it with ugly golf. So I think, uh, the uh, where am I trying to go here? The, um, the players, the players haven't got as much pull, I don't think, on the European tour as, you know, the like course setup, uh, maybe, what they would like in tournament set up, but uh, they don't actually get it. PJ Tour, I think they just, uh, the players have a lot of the pull and um, they know they do, so they can exploit that. Sorry, have I answered that? Am I going where you want this yeah, to go? Yeah, you, you kind of have. I'm, I'm wondering as you're talking there, does what you're describing, including right down to, we'd all love to see professional golf played on the best and most interesting golf courses, but in terms of player development, playing on not the best courses in not the best conditions, does it produce better players or just different players. Some players from Europe seem to find it difficult to adapt to the US conditions, and I wonder whether that's partly because it's almost a bit too same-same. The challenge isn't there, and the requirement, 
to figure things out on the fly, to come up with a that shot from a lie. the same question all the time, isn't it? It kind of does, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one way – yeah, they figure, it's, it's one way of playing. And I, you're not necessarily going to get the best – when I say not necessarily going to get the best golfers in the world because they are the best players. I mean, you're looking at players like well, clearly Woods and Mickelson and you know, guys like that throughout the years who are the best players in the world. But the uh, – I suppose the middling sort of players that I want to talk, you know, that I'm talking about, they, they've found a way to play a game, which is clearly now bash the thing through the air, get as far down there as you can, and get the shortest club into the green, whether it's from the rough or the fairway, uh, and make every single putt that you can make. Um, pretty boring and basic. Um, I think. Well, I think it's only and, boring and, because it's all we get. That's that's my my take on it. Yeah. Like there's those are all difficult skills that they've mastered. But yeah. it's it's the only skill that they're asked to perform every week. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I mean, they're yeah, they're, they're good, it, impressive yeah. skills. But it's when it becomes the only thing that you see, then it becomes boring. But it it is impressive. Yeah, it of course it is. Yeah, but I, I, don't we all love to see a player in the trees and trying to cut a ball out of a really bad lie or yep. really thin lie around yes. the green, really bad, thin, wet. Horrible lie that cuppy, tacky and, turf or something. Yes, yeah, you're, you're really fancy trying to get a lobwedge under this, or you're going to putt it, or you know, have you, you know, have you got your, have you got your balls in your mouth at the time, or, do, or are you going to stand up and try and hit the shot? It's uh, off, you know, really scabby sort of stuff or muddy. You uh, put your hands ball. over your ears. Rod, yeah, uh, <laughs> well, we've, off, we've yeah. delved into the short game. I switched off quite a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, was, I mean, yeah. Look, I'm, one from last year, and um, yeah, my boss is uh, he's trying to deal with it still, but he's he's owning it. Uh, we're at the French Open. Uh, came up the seventeenth hole in the last round, and uh, that was just short of the green after driving at the rough, and uh, had that sort of shot. It was a thin uphill wet lie, uh, slightly into the grain, and just a really awkward chip with a lob wedge, and he hadn't been confident with his lob wedge chips from around the green, from a thin, wet lie, uh, so decided to putt it and ended up putting it off the green on the other end and making double bogey. Ended up losing the tournament by one. Um, and it's, yeah, and exposed him at that time. And as I said, he's, you know, he's dealing with that now, and uh, he, uh, it's, it's going to make him a better player without question. But they're the sort of shots that um, I think you could, People, people are actually interested in seeing that sort of shot nowadays. People aren't impressed with seeing a 350-yard drive. It's just it's dull because everyone does it. You know, the driver has made everyone drive it exactly the same. Some guys drive it way longer, but everyone drives it really long and really straight and really high, whereas not everyone can chip it off a bad lie around a green. Not everyone can get it up and down from an ordinary line of bunker. It, it They're is the interesting shots. It is, in fact, the joy of Tiger, isn't it? His highlight reel is not the driver. Yeah. His highlight reel is around the greens. And put him in that same position, 17th hole Sunday afternoon, you know nine times out of ten he'll come up with a remarkable shot. Oh, and, yeah, we, I mean, we've watched enough Seve videos in the last yeah. couple of weeks uh, while we've been watching. There's no such thing as enough Seve videos, Adam. Soap and water, my friend. That is true. I mean, he was, he was the best. Um, he brought everything, didn't he, to the game. But, uh, yeah, the, the shots that he would hit, they they – with bums on seats, they uh, they got people interested seeing him slash it out of long rough and car parks and trees and you know brick walls or wherever. Um, that that keeps you really interested, but not not hitting a wedge into a par five or an eight iron into a par five or something. That just doesn't do it for me anyway. But just here we go. I'm getting cynical already. Not it's not that far into the interview. 
<laughs> Welcome. You're the third guest in a row who could easily step in as a co-host on this show because you're talking the right language uh, in all all the right ways. Just on that, I mentioned at the very start, I oh, will put this in the show notes, I'm guessing neither of you saw it, Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler playing 18 holes with Persimmon, Ballada and Blades. Uh, I only just saw it on um, uh, Twitter just now, so yeah, I haven't so, actually seen it. Yeah, there's just a couple of videos of him hitting, a couple of driver off the tee, a couple off a par three. The point I was going to ask about, though, or make they have about, shirts on, or were they doing a whole? No, there <laughs> wasn't Baker's Bay, mate. They're much more responsible in these times of pandemic. Okay, good. It was a, Justin <laughs> might have been wearing a cardigan. I'm not sure. I'll have to check the nice, effects. Nice. Okay. Right. We'll have to have a look. <laughs> uh, what I was going to ask, though, was, Adam, you, like many others who've trooped through this this podcast and others that I've been involved with who see the game up close, keep coming to the same conclusion that it's just not impressive to watch players or not interesting to watch players continue to hit long drives and short irons uh, to par fives and all those sorts of things. Why is that the product that we keep pushing? Why is it that, that those who run professional golf seem convinced that that, in fact, is the most interesting? It's a really good question. I mean, yeah, I'm sounding like an old... A grizzled veteran caddy, which uh, maybe I'm getting to that point. I don't want to own or a co-host. Do you choose? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Why? Look, the manufacturers have something to do with it because they keep pushing and telling us uh, you've got to have a new driver and it's going to send it another ten yards or another twenty yards every single year. Um, that, and they, I suppose, they pour a bit of money into things. Um, do they? Yeah, uh, it's. Do they? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, they give very little back, don't they? Did yeah, Titleist, although, did sure. I see a story the other day that Titleist did actually yes, do some sort of charitable? Yes, to their credit, they've been doing some some stuff during the pandemic in terms of, I think, manufacturing uh, protective gear and whatnot. Oh, right. In their factory, yeah. so. Okay. Good on them. Good question. Why, why, why are we interested in seeing guys thrash ball miles? And, you know, is it impressive because someone can hit a wedge into a par five? I suppose yeah, when you when you hear that when you're sitting down in the locker room with uh, all the boys on a Saturday afternoon, you hear that some guys hit a wedge into a par five. I think, wow, what a, you know, what's all that about? But I suppose when they're all doing it, it's not really that exciting, is it? Um, it's not an impressive wide. shot to look at either. Like you know, it's um, still just a wedge, isn't it? It's just a wedge. Yeah, forty to one ten. Not an impressive just shot. Just a pitching. No, and yeah, golf. We, we want to see a long iron. We want to see that. It's Seve Long Iron into 13 um, mm. when he made Eagle when he uh, lost it in 1986. I mean, that's, that's one of the nearly mm. nearly a perfect hole, that one. So, I mean, high draw driver, high cutting Long Iron into a green and then making the putt for Eagle. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just stunning to watch. And Whereas now they chunking a four iron. Chunking a four iron. Faldo deciding between two iron and five wood in 96 uh, and that back and forth and, yeah. and all of that. But yeah, and seeing an eight iron into that green didn't really do it for me because it's it's an eight iron. It, uh, it's still a challenging shot, of course it is, but it's an eight iron, not a four iron or a three iron. Um, I, yeah, sorry, I was still haven't answered this question. I don't know why they seem to push that. Um, has it just been pushed because equipment is going so far? And because the players are in control of the tour and that's what they like and there's a certain set of the players for whom those skills are... Uh, are their strengths, and therefore those players dictate what we see. Lots in that that we won't, that we won't be able to sell always- now. We've been on about it for years and haven't got anywhere. The point I was, I guess, was going to make was that Thomas and Fowler proved again this morning, not for the first time. People think that those of us who say the ball goes too far are being anti the players, that we're not recognising their amazing skills and the work they do. That's not true. They could all adapt. Fowler and Thomas proved it again this morning. 
and create more entertaining golf, Adam. Yes, yeah, so, well, look, and they the best will adapt. I mean, and the ones who aren't very, they won't. And but they'll still be great players, regardless of someone we've never heard of who who can play with Persimmon and Bellata, who can play with Hickory for all we know, whatever it might be. And there there was someone who can play with whatever equipment is presented to them in that time, in that era, whatever. Um, clearly, I mean, I haven't seen this video, but by the sounds of what you're saying, that they um, they know what they're doing with the with the stuff, and they can play the game very well, and they can adapt to whatever it might be that's thrown in front of them. And look, a lot of it will come down to, as well, pure attitude. If you, you want to win the thing so desperately, that tournament, that day, that round, that hole, whatever, you'll just find a way. Uh, and, you know, if you're forced to play with a ballada ball or you've, or you've been given the opportunity to, uh, to play with a, uh, the latest driver that sends it you know, miles through the air, I think your attitude is going to overtake anything that equipment can throw into um an equation or a golf course or anything. You just you'll find a way to get the ball in the hole and fewer shots than anyone else, uh, and that's where your I mean your absolute champions are coming from. Yeah, well, give Tiger Woods whatever equipment you like. In fact, give him a set of left-handed clubs. He'd still back himself to beat you. Well, he's played with uh, when he first came out on tour. He's playing with blades and mm-hmm. I don't think it was Ballada, but he was playing with certainly it was actually with, you know, it was it, a wound ball. Yeah, yeah professional yeah, yeah. wound ball. Completely different equipment to what he's playing with now, and a few phases in between too. I mean, he's probably played with more differing equipment than anyone. Nicholas pl- probably played with Persimmon Ballada nearly all his career. Back end of it, he had that uh, Jays driver he got from Jumbo, Z- Jumbo Ozaki all those years ago. And the big putter. But, yeah, and the big putter. But, you know, I don't think the big putter was that much of an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> that was awful. Yeah, it didn't last long, did it? Ball. They sold uh, a lot of those uh, putters in one year. Yeah, they did. They did pretty well out of that. Um, shows how good he was. He could adapt to something that probably wasn't very good. Um, but uh, he – and, look, yeah, of course, equipment got slightly better for him, but I don't think it's as uh, big a jump as it was for, say, Tiger, you know, playing with – you never play with um, a Simmon, but oh, the wound ball and, you know, that little tightless drive, the 975D or whatever it was, to what he's playing now, I think he's – He's certainly found a way to adapt. Clates is fond of asking the question, and it's an interesting one. Has there been any player in this era hurt more by the equipment advances than Tiger? And it's an interesting one to consider. Had the equipment stayed the same as what it was in 97, might he have been more dominant? You're right. He's had to adapt from swinging, swinging the club to swinging the club as fast as possible, particularly with the driver, which is, in fact, almost a different swing, isn't it, Adam? Players in this day and age almost have two golf swings, don't they? Watching Justin Thomas on that video, to my very poorly trained eye, looks to be a much more balanced move than what we see from Justin Thomas week in and week out when he plays and swings it out of his shoes. Older equipment, you can't swing out of his shoes because if you miss the centre of the club, it's uh, well, mm-hmm. you're not going to hit it more than 180 yards through the air. So, uh, Shot, you, what are you talking about? That's- <laughs> 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 Yeah, they had to be a measure of control, I suppose. So, uh, but then you did have guys like Norman or Seve or mm-hmm. Nicholas uh, or Tom Watson who would still thrash at the golf ball with persimmon. Johnny Miller, you know, they'd thrash at the ball and back themselves that they were that good with their probably more coordination, more than technique. Than, uh, and they, uh, yeah, they, they, they played magnificent golf with that. Um, the uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. I was going on to. Um, Equipment through the ages, but no, sorry, you you go on. I'll try and get myself back to where I was. Well, I was going to ask you. You've seen players up close when they're 
in that state of mind where they're, like you said a couple of times, where they're just determined to win at all costs. And yeah. I, I assume, I can't look up, they don't generally give caddies a Wikipedia page with lists of wins and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, well, how many wins have you had? Just Run us that. through who you've caddied for. And yeah, who, who have you caddied for? And- in fact, we're 40 minutes in. You better give yourself some credentials. Otherwise, I'm going to have to throw this whole podcast out. Everyone's thinking, who is this bloke who's yeah, talking Who is this bloke? <laughs> um, so, uh, Adam Drummond. I'm from Melbourne. Um, I caddied when I was 11 years old at Royal Melbourne. Um, Jeff Ogilvie was there at the time as well. He's uh, three years younger than I am. Um, so, we grew up butting heads together and uh, and playing amateur golf. And I played, uh, eventually went on to Woodlands Golf Club. I was pennant captain there. I you know, got down to plus two handicap. Um, and I caddied for Jeff in a few uh, like uh, Victorian Opens or an Aussie Masters and uh, was he when he got fiery his... back then he would have oh, what do you oh, mean? was he fiery as a mate oh. caddying for him but did he want to well, were you a bit scared of him I, wasn't, I was never scared of him but look he, I mean, he was young and he didn't listen and I was young and I was a bit too green but you know we uh, we were both trying to do the best we could, really. So, yeah, I mean, I started caddying for him in Europe in 99 because he, he wanted someone he knew. Um, that lasted for most of the year until eventually I, I actually said to him, I can't do this anymore. We're, we're just killing each other. And, yeah, he wasn't listening. He was you know, breaking clubs every week, all that sort of nonsense. It was uh, – and, yeah, it was frightening how good he was too because, you know, fourth in Portugal and, like, our third week out there. Um, yeah, we, I think we played with Seve in one of our first – few tournaments down in Spain too. It was uh, it, it, it was a it was a hell of a baptism of fire, I suppose, in caddying. Because from there, if I wanted to keep doing it, I had to get a whole lot better. Because Jeff needed to be told to pull his head in, um, and I didn't have the skill set at the time to do that. Uh, I, well, I was twenty four, I think I was. Um, but yeah, I, I was, clearly wasn't ready to do, to handle that on the big stage, and uh, I had to go uh, uh, get my. Yeah, my skills better from there, I suppose. Oh, look, I'm not saying I figured it out because it's uh, I don't think you ever do in this job, but um, yeah, so look, I started with Jeff. Uh, from him, uh, various players that I worked for guys like uh, Stephen Leaney, Alex Chaker, uh, Paul Casey, one with him a couple of times back in 2003, um, Peter O'Malley, uh, Soren Hansen, who I had about four and a half years with. Um, unfortunately, never won with him, but I think we finished second nine times. Um, Did he hit but, one offline uh, when you were with him at all? I've never seen him hit a shot anything but dead straight. Oh, I'm thinking. Sorry. No, no, I'm thinking of Peter Hansen. Sorry, wrong Hansen. Uh, no, Peter, Peter Hansen never hit a shot offline, but Soren Hansen never never missed the middle of the club. Right, might have been, might have been the best striker of the ball I've seen outside of Ian Woosnam, wow. who just never missed the middle yeah. of the club. I mean, Soren was frightening. I mean, distance control with his irons was superb. Uh, great driver of the ball. His putting was a little bit weak um, and his chipping was a little bit weak, but that was the only things that really held him back. I mean, he's a Ryder Cup player. He was yeah, a terrific golfer. Um, but as for hitting the middle of a golf club with a blade and uh, ballada and things like that, he was just frightening um, how good he was and uh, just a wonderful person to boot too. Uh, got me into the Danish camp and I've had a few Danish golfers since, so it's, uh, it's been a good thing. But uh, Plenty of Hansons yeah. to get through in uh, Denmark, isn't there? So, <laughs> yeah, there are a few. <laughs> JB Hansen is who you're with at the moment. Was that? Did I miss that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah right. JB. Yeah. Um, also from Copenhagen. Uh, also a very good ball striker. Um, he's a uh, tiny little draw most of the time. So uh, yeah, look from Soren, I went on to um, with Alex Noren, 
uh, with uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez. A um, couple of Aussie boys along the way too. Rick Kulak, Scott Strange, Jordan Zunick, who could be anything oh, if he uh, wants yeah. to sort himself out. Oh, I think they're good. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, I actually came back with um, uh, Nathan Holman, who's a Woodlands member as well. Um, I used to play golf with his dad on Saturdays, actually, uh, back in the day, and Nathan used to run around on the putting green there as a kid. Um, uh, came back to Europe with him, but he decided that golf wasn't for him anymore, so uh, left me over here without a job and uh, uh, <laughs> managed to just sort of stumble into JB Hansen's uh, job. And, yeah, we've been doing well. I had a great year last year. And, uh, yeah, things are – I mean, things have been looking very good. So uh, I suppose we're both itching to get back out. We just have to be patient, I suppose. So uh, that's, I suppose, my – that's a short version of 21 years anyway. Mm. Just to back up a bit, you mentioned Soren Hansen there, never missed the middle of the club, maybe not great chipper and putter. Why doesn't a player like that win more? Is he one that maybe is hurt by equipment as well and that change? Um, if you hit it out of the middle of the club with every shot, so you drive it where you're looking, you hit your irons mostly on the greens, even if you're not a great putter. Just need, no, he just needed to make more putts. That, <laughs> pure and simple, he just didn't make enough putts. Um, it probably made it look worse, a bit like Peter O'Malley. I mean, he hits the ball so close to the hole so often that you see him miss from 10 feet, 8 feet. You think he's never... He's never making birdies. He's playing rubbish. And I suppose it does get into your head after a while that you're, you're presented with so many opportunities that when they're not dropping, um, you get the frustration can kick in. You know, if you're hitting 67 greens at a tournament or something silly like that and you know, shooting <laughs> eight under, um, it'll tear you apart, yeah. uh, especially when some guys are you know, getting it up and down from everywhere and finishing at uh, 16 under. Um, so, look, I mean, all of these guys that I've seen out here over the years, they're all good. Every player is good. They're big and ugly enough to get the ball up near the green in two. It's what happens down that far end of the green and attitude, without question. Because even if, you're, even if you've got your game in great spots, if your attitude sucks, you're just never going to get anywhere in this game. And it has to be – it just has to be good because there's 140-odd 100 you know, guys every single week and a few of them are going to have good attitudes and their game on. You can't really afford to have uh, – yeah, your mind off the job. No, there's, there's there's never a time when the whole field plays bad, is there? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Pick a day. There's going to be ten guys who are going to shoot lights out at every single day of every it single tournament. That's it just doesn't matter what sort of golf course they set up. They can set up a golf course with long rough and boom greens, and that someone will still find a way yep. to shoot nine under, eight under, whatever, because they're very very good at what they do. And they've been there for a few days. They've had a few practice rounds. They get used to the golf course and they just figure it out. And they just they're good at what they do. So what is the caddy's role, Adam? Is it your fault that Soren Hansen didn't win more? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean that quite seriously. What is the caddy's role? And can the caddy have that much impact? You mentioned Jordan Zunick, and I agree with you. I've watched Jordan. I know Jordan a little bit. Lovely bloke. Unbelievable natural talent. A genuinely extraordinary natural talent. And you wonder why he hasn't got to where we all from the outside think he should be. Hmm. Oh, I mean, someone like Jordan can be his own worst enemy, and uh, he'll freely admit that too, that he's had attitude problems over uh, over time. And, um, yeah, look, if you can sort that out, uh, it could be terrific because he has won a few times too, you know, mm-hmm. and he shoot really low numbers. So uh, there's a bit of there's a bit of right place, right time, of course. Um, you know, if you win the Queensland Open like he did, that, that means something. But if you can transfer that to, say, a challenge to a win which gets him on the main tour, that's a different thing altogether. Um, so I suppose Caddy's role, uh, as you're saying, well, I mean, every player needs something 
completely different from every caddy, really. Uh, I have, though, over the years learned more and more that, well, less is more. Um, you have to be prepared for anything that they might bring to the course that day, their attitude or their game or anything like that. Have all the information prepared for anything that might happen. But really, give them nothing unless you absolutely have to because you can impose yourself as a caddy and say, yeah, here's the, here's the yardage, I think it's 6-iron. Here's the yardage, uh, I think it's a cut 7-iron. They start relying on you a little bit too much and it takes away a little bit of their crea- creativity and a little bit of their natural flair and talent for the game. And they are very, very good golfers. They got there without caddies. So uh, I think caddy's role really is only, it should only be, to enhance what they've got. Um, and whether that is mentally, uh, physically it's not going to be too much. It might be a technical thing because it might be a, a cut six iron or a draw seven iron, depending on flag, wind or whatever. But that's only been brought up if it really needs to be brought up. You nearly want them to hit. Sometimes you'd rather hit them, let them hit the wrong shot uh, with the right attitude than the uh, the correct shot with um, doubt in their mind. Funny you should say that. Bruce Young, I don't know whether you know Bruce, a long-time golf writer down here. He was a long-time caddy as well. And he says that constantly. It's far better that a player hit the wrong shot Oh, sorry, hit the right shot with the wrong club than the wrong shot with the right club. So if, if as the caddy you think it's six and the player's convinced it's five, let him hit the five and hit it with confidence. You'll get a much better result than hitting the six with doubt. Uh, because it's that's also just what happen. happens after that too. Even if they're happy, you know, they've hit a great shot and it goes a little bit long or whatever, but they're, they're buoyant straight after. They get, oh, I didn't quite get that right. That's okay. I'll get it up and down from there. Mm. Whereas the converse is, of course, you talk me into that club. Now look where we are. Yeah. <laughs> I might as well start you know, thinking about uh, going home on the weekend. It, it's amazing how quickly these things can happen too. So, uh, look, that's not to say that uh, you don't have to step in every now and then because, of course, you do. You have to poke your nose in there and then and uh, say, like, I can't let you hit that club at this, uh, this time with this situation or why are you trying to hit a, a high-cut uh, fade into that back right pin when all you've been hitting is draws for the last three weeks? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, so sometimes you do have to poke your nose in. Uh, it's it's the art of the timing. And um, listen, I mean, when I when I first came out on tour, there were some older guys like Dave Musgrove and Dave Rennick and Billy Foster. Um, not that Billy's that old. Uh, but will be you in no time when he is that. <laughs> I know he will. Um, but I was able to pick their brain, and they were patient enough to let me do it. And um, yeah, Dave Musgrove was brilliant. He just said, "Just tell them nothing. Tell them nothing, but be prepared for everything." I mean, he infamously on uh, – so he worked for Sandy Lyle in 1988 at the Masters. And when Sandy had that bunker shot out of the fairway traps, you know, dropped him behind the flag to about 12 feet or whatever it was, Sandy actually asked him to read the putt. And um, Muzzy was brilliant. You know, there would be a lot of caddies who would be glory hunters and say, I want to get in there and it's going to be, you know, just right of centre. Muzzy said, I haven't read a putt all week. You're putting brilliantly. Back yourself. Knock it in. Wow. Yeah, I mean that that takes some balls to do that. You're not wrong, absolutely. <laughs> to to, to I, not inject yourself, indeed. That is fascinating. Um, I, I've got this theory, and you're a perfect person to ask this, given you were an excellent golfer. I, I, I've never articulated this theory <laughs> before, so <laughs> bear with me. This, for this a will second. be good. <laughs> we're on dangerous ground now, low <laughs> no, freewheeling, and this is not his. Worry about this. I've, I've, got, I've always felt that there's this the dynamic, just observing the dynamic between players and caddies. Uh, you know, the best caddies seem to always have their eyes on their man and and be anticipating what they're going to be asked. Like there's this there's this 
really imbalanced dynamic to the relationship where it's all set up so that the player can be this show off and and do their job in this spectacular fashion. And to be a great player, I think you've got to be a bit of a show off. Uh, like you've got to have that mindset. But then a hell of a lot of caddies are also, you know, they get into golf. The, the whole reason they're caddying, a lot of them are, you know, failed failed pros or like they're top amateurs who just want to stay around in the game. They love their golf. They love traveling around. Um, but to me, I think there's a, it's a, there's a vocational aspect to it where caddies, it's not so much about them that they actually just find themselves falling into this position where it's about achieving a result for somebody. It's like they're born, you know, they're, they're born helpers or they're, they're, there's an empathy to it. That, that I think top players actually lack a little bit of this empathy, this human human empathy. But a caddy has this empathy of like trying to anticipate what the other person's feeling and what the other person's going through on their journey to try and win this tournament. And oh, just, no just this we're... natural mindset that, you know, some people are caddies, some people are players. Well, we see... We see players, as a caddy, we see players when they turn up and instantly when they turn up, whether it's in the locker room or you see them walking through the car park or wherever it might be, you've already got a good picture of what sort of day, not sort of what sort of day, but how they are, you know, what their mood might be already. And yet you're right, you do anticipate everything that uh, they might be thinking, uh, you know, what the previous day might have been, previous night might have been. You, know, you, you get involved in their personal lives because it does matter to, them, uh, to how they might play. So you, you, have to, you have to know everything you can about them. Um, because it's, you, as I said, you, you're trying to draw the best that you can out of that person every single day, and uh, yeah, look, I, it's it's such an addictive job too. It really is. The travel, no question. Just um, yeah, I've had the opportunity to go to over 50 countries in the world and see you know so much of the world and experience so many different things, and uh, you know you don't get that in too many other industries. But to see professional sport up close is even better, and a sport that I've always loved. Um, just adds to that even more. Um, I, I clearly knew I was never going to be good enough to play at this level. Uh, and that's sort of why I came over with with Jeff. When the opportunity came, I thought, let's come over, caddy for a year or two, and then uh, really uh, get stuck into some practice and see if I can make it. But uh, once you see how good these guys are, that you realise that it's not. I'm not going to be anywhere near that good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think every caddy just wants – and it doesn't matter who you're working for, what tour they're uh, on, uh, what level they are, you are just trying to get the most out of them on that day, in that situation, you know, high, low, whatever. I mean, they're having a, they're having a pig of a day and they're battling to make a cup. You're still working. You, you just want that person to, if they can get through, they, you know that they're going to feel a whole lot better about themselves and, you know, it's going to make their, make their day better, make their life better, make their I don't know, career better, whatever it might be. Uh, and you, you can't give up. You never want to give up on a person. You, you can't be a quitter as a caddy because, well, if you're ever looking for a new job in the future, it's not going to happen because, <laughs> you know, that, that word's going to get around that you're not, you know, you're not sticking to the task. So uh, um, it's it's a job that uh, – I mean, I have thought about it a fair bit. Um, it's a very odd job because uh, you're subservient. The, uh, the person dictates where you're going to be on any, seven, uh, any given week. You can't really make plans for your outside life. Um, you, uh, 
uh, you're told to be uh, on the practice field at six in the morning, or you're told that uh, you're going to have to do a bit more practice in the evening. So you can't, you, uh, you're up to, you, you, you do live their life uh, for them at the same time while you're trying to get the best out of them, but you don't, you don't resent them for it really, unless they're being a complete ass. You don't really resent them for it. Do, do some caddies actually, but I, I get the feeling that just hearing you talk, I, I, I feel like you're if, perfectly fitting this vocation where you you're there to to get the best out of the player and you and you you know you've got this strong feeling of empathy and then i i feel like you you sound like you like to make a connection with your player and uh and and you see it as a genuine team even if the player doesn't <laughs> and i'm sure that i'm sure you've had players <laughs> like that um yeah, true <laughs> uh but are there caddies that you you've observed who they just they're not in the right job like they they go through the motions of all of that, but they're actually they actually feel a sort of a disdain for their player. I, I, I feel like I can see that sometimes on TV looking at the caddies. Yeah, I think sometimes just doing the rounds. I mean, because yeah, if you're doing it for a certain amount of time, that you uh, you might have uh, you, you're not really given the choice of who you're working for too, because the player might say to you, "Listen, we're we're done. We're we're not getting the results we want at the moment. Whatever." So you're looking for a job in the next few weeks, and then you find someone you need the work. So you. Uh, there might be a caddy out there who's working for someone for the next, I don't know, eight weeks. They don't really get on with each other or there might be a language barrier or no common interests or, I don't know, he's uh, not being treated all that well. And I suppose there might be a slight disconnect, but I suppose the caddy, if he doesn't take the job, he you, you're forgotten immediately out here. You can't really take a week off unless you are Billy Foster. You can't, you can't sit by the phone and wait for the phone to ring. You have to present yourself to try to get a job for you know, the future or the following week or the following month because um, without the CV of a Billy Foster and if we have to be really honest, players don't really know every caddy's name or, or who they are, so they're not going to immediately think, right, I've got to get that person on the on the bag. So you have to present yourself. And guys sometimes go through, go through weeks with a player that they just don't get on with, they don't gel with. I'm not saying that they don't like each other or they're not going to do the job well, but it just doesn't click. And I suppose... You know, football managers and football players who play for certain teams, there might be that little disconnect sometimes too, but maybe they're just trying to ride that uh, rough wave till they find a, a good one that they can get onto uh, in the future, particularly if they see it as a vocation. And, I, you know, as I said, it's an addictive thing. And, I, yeah, the, money's, the money can be brilliant in this job, but, look, I'm not doing it purely for the money. I mean, it's if I did it purely for the money, I'd be scratching and doing everything I could to get on the PGA Tour. But uh, the lifestyle is... Amazing! It really, it really is. I mean, I get to take the wife out on tour five, six times a, a year. She might just come over for a long weekend to I don't know Switzerland or Paris or wherever. It's it's, it's a good life. Mm. It's a really good life. It, it's not one that any careers advisor will recommend. Uh, no, <laughs> one would think. And one of the reasons being, you talked about yes, the money can be phenomenal uh, if you hook up with an extremely successful player. We know how much money there is in professional golf, but. From the outside, it would appear the money's probably erratic. That must make it difficult. You know, one week, one week you make ten thousand, and the next six weeks you make nothing. Is that difficult? I think they're the things that people want to know about life as a caddy. Oh, you've got to store your nuts for the winter, don't you? That's all you can do, really. If you have a big payday, you don't uh, go and blow it on um, I don't know fast cars or anything like that. Not that uh, no, there's not too many caddies doing that, but um, yeah, you just there's a yeah, couple. Sensible. Yeah, well, there's a couple maybe. But, Gareth Ward uh, gets around in a Ferrari, doesn't he? I think he did after yeah, the uh, uh, the FedEx Cup win a couple of years ago with with um, 
Henrik. Uh, with uh, Stenson, yeah. Um, yeah, he's done all right out of the game, man. Um, Lordy. Uh, I'd, look, I'd, just a little quick one uh, an aside. I, I used to room with Lordy back back in the day when he was working for Steve Webster, I think, and I might have been with Soren. And um, I do remember two years ago, I was back in Melbourne. Uh, I was heading at a one-day mini tour school for the Australian Ladies Tour, heading for Beth Allen, um, Californian girl, uh, mm-hmm. cracking girl, known her for a Scotland. long time. Sponsored by a brewery. I mean, there's, there's a lot to like there, I've got to tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cracking girl. I've known her for a long time. So so working for her at uh, Ballarat Golf Club and uh, had to go and make my own yardage book. There wasn't, you know, there's no infrastructure, no setup or anything like that. It's a pure one-day sprint to get four places it might have been to play in, like, the Australian Open and maybe one or two other major Australian tournaments for the girls. Um, so I did all the work there. And I remember being out there and Beth was making a, Big of a hole on about the fourth, which is out the back corner of the um, golf course. And I'm raking a bunker thinking, so that morning, I'd just been watching the TV and Lordy had just won with Stenson. No, he just won with Justin Rose. <laughs> so he's just gone from Stenson to Rose and, you know, pocketed himself another, I don't know, <laughs> couple of hundred thousand. And I thought, so here I am in Ballarat. I used to room with this guy all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a bunker in Ballarat. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, well, that's, that's our life, though. Um, so, yeah, when, 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 look, when the money does come, you know it mightn't be there next time. So you just, you try to put away what you can. Uh, if you've got an opportunity to, yeah, maybe put a deposit down on a flat or something like that, you take it while you can because it mightn't be there in the future. But also keep some back because, you know, you don't know what's around the corner. Right now, there's, look, there's a lot of caddies right now who might be in that position where they're struggling by because they, they haven't got any money and they just don't know when they're going to be working next. And, uh, I wanted to ask yeah, about man. that because, of course, Ian Finnis, Tommy yeah. Fleetwood's caddy, has raised an enormous amount of money uh, for the European Tour occasion the last couple of weeks. Tell us what that's about. And he's an interesting one, isn't he? There's a case of a couple of blokes who are just mates, and that's worked out yeah. brilliantly for those two, Fleetwood and Finnis. Yeah, well, they've been mates for a long time. They um, Both from um, that Southport area of uh, living just outside of Liverpool, up where near Raw Birkdale. Um, they've known each other forever. Um, the Finno caddy for Tommy for, you know, like the – say, the amateur championship or the yeah. British boys. They've always been mates. So uh, they came out together on tour and um, a challenge tour and that. And, yeah, they clearly just get on and do the job very well. So Finno's Fino, done very well out of this game. When he uh, first started, uh, Tommy wasn't making that much money and challenge tour, there isn't a lot of money. So uh, he knew he knows what it's like. He had uh, two kids, uh, a wife, um, you know, bills to pay. And uh, he battled on for a couple of years. So he's seen, now that he's a, a lucky man to have fallen into a, a terrific job and, and a lot of money, he's uh, seen that he knows there's a few guys out there struggling. So he thought he'd auction a few things off and uh, started a GoFundMe page. Uh, I think he was, his initial goal was, what was it, 30 grand, 10 grand it might have been. That was 10 grand, I think. You know, getting about 125,000. It was just absurd. Yeah. And, to their credit, every single player that he knows just donated a golf bag or a uh, signed flag or something like that. And then, but even more so, the people of mainly the UK, but uh, you know, people from the US, Dubai, whatever, they um, they kicked in 10 quid and said, you know, good chance to win maybe a, a signed whatever or an experience or a, a new putter or whatever. Um, but also, you know, very heartwarming to say, you know, can't wait to see caddies out there again because, you know, you know we, we just like being around you guys. 
uh, and we're fortunate that we can and we do chat to these guys. So yeah, he uh, he extended it. Uh, as it raised about one hundred and twenty-five thousand, and um, that's going to get split up amongst the caddies who really need the money. And um, yeah, it, it's not going to it's not going to pay for everything, but it's uh, it's going to keep it ticking over for a lot of guys who really need it. Yeah, I'm just noting the time. There's not a lot of time left, but there's a couple of things I still wanted to ask you about. Is it the weirdest employment relationship in the world, golfer and caddy? And caddy, I can't think of anything that comes close to it. Um, well, then again, there's people who turn up for a job that uh, in an industry they've never heard of before, and they have to go for an interview and think, "I just need money to pay for the you know, the mortgage and the and the groceries." So they might actually be engaged with the job. And you, there's certainly people out there who hate their job. Um, but yeah, it is it is odd because you you're forced. It's I tell you what, it's probably what's odder is the people that you meet along the way who become your mates. Who also happen to be caddies, but yeah, he might be from Buenos Aires, or he might be from I don't know San Sebastian, or he might be from wherever, and you never actually think these guys could become your best mates. Um, that's really weird because you, you don't go into it thinking about uh, anything when you go into it. First of all, you with a guy that you know, and maybe one or two others who happen to be from the same part of the world that you are. But then you you form these relationships with other people that, and they're very long lasting as well, and you chat together all the time. Um, that's very odd. Uh, yeah, the, look, the, but yeah, the relationships you have with players and caddies, it's, uh, you don't know. I mean, I've caddied girls tour, seniors tour, uh, men's tour, PJ tour, for Danes, for Spaniards, for, for everyone. It's, uh, I suppose, yeah, it is odd. And you form, you're sort of forced into that relationship. Um, and you, uh, yeah, you uh, you do what whatever you can to get the best out of that person, mm. however it might have to be. Yeah, I, I think a, an excellent measure of how odd it is would be how many times you have to explain it to your bank manager to, to get a <laughs> to get a mortgage or something. Right. Can you imagine he'd be like, "So this other guy plays a game, and depending on how he goes, yeah. is how your income's going to turn out." And, oh, and you can't tell me what your income is going to be like. How, how does that go? <laughs> oh, and also just explaining to your uh, accountant. Look, here's the uh, here's the money from last year for the tax return and that, and uh, here's a whole lot of. Currencies that I've used for the last year. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the, uh, <laughs> Which used to be worse. I mean, back in the 1999 when it first started, yeah, there was well, the Dutch Gilder and the French Franc and no, the German no Euro. Bar. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no Euro then. So, God, I mean, the, the money that you used to have, I had a, I had a big um, plastic bucket in my room that I just dumped coins and notes into, and you'd, you'd <laughs> rifle through it for the next year thinking, oh, where's all that German marks? Or where's that, those Gilders or whatever it might be? You know, it was Escudos, Portuguese Escudos, and knowing that it's 200 and 67 of scudos to the pound. Um, yeah, so that I mean, that was – God, that was hard work. Um, Euros made it a little bit easier, but, uh, yeah, uh, this – it's not a yeah, – look, it's not a secure job. It's not a sort of job that you would, um, you would sort of advertise and say, this is um, going to give you a lot of security and a lot of fun and a lot of uh, uh, something to look forward to later in life. But I'll tell you what, I, I would never give it up for anything. I mean, I've loved every second what have your mum and dad thought about it over the years? And has their attitude towards you? Because they're always like, oh, gee, it doesn't sound very- – I don't know, Adam. You know, there's a nice job at the accountancy practice down here. You could do that or you could become, you know, a banker or something um, like that. I'm lucky. I had the best parents in the world. They were very encouraging for everything that all of us did. I'm one of five kids. Um, we're all very different. Uh, my brother's an architect. Uh, next brother down's a school teacher. Sister, who was she was librarian at the MCG, but now works for in the media department at the AFL, uh, and the youngest brother's in a rock and roll band. 
So um, we're uh, we're pretty diverse, uh, and so mum and dad looked. They were always encouraging of everything that we did, and um, I mean, dad played a little bit of golf himself too. Um, so he he understood, and he oh look, he loved the opportunity to come out and watch it. He was a decent sportsman himself as a kid, so he uh, um, yeah, he, they, they were both very very encouraging for this sort of stuff. There was uh, never never a worry about that sort of thing. There was never a uh, you've got to have something to fall back on or anything like that. They were just they um, they pushed and encouraged anything that we really loved, and uh, well, I'm still loving this. So Dad must have done a good job. So yeah. I know do. No, we did. <laughs> and a related question: It feels to me like all of the caddies I've met, which is not in the hundreds by any stretch, but all of them I've met seem to have just fallen into it almost by accident. I think you're probably another example of that. Does that ring true to you? Sort of, but I, I think I saw an opportunity to. To do the two things I really wanted to do at the time, as I said, I mean, I offered myself to Jeff after he got his carded tour school, and uh, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see what the world was about. You know, I had a fascination at the time, and I wanted to see if I was good enough to go and play. And it became pretty apparent after the first couple of weeks that I was never going to be that good. But then the, the addictive gene came into it. So uh, yeah, you, you and then you, you know, once myself and Jeff split up, I fell into another job worked for Craig Spence for three weeks in the US and then a job came up in Europe again and I went back to Europe to work for Stephen Leaney and it sort of yeah snowballed from there and once you once you're in you know you, you find out you find that it's really good it's, yeah you know, it's not easy if you want to settle down or have kids or go to weddings or you know see your sister or whatever but it's it's great in other ways mm. yeah rewarding in lots of different ways uh you mentioned majors and having been to the US and whatnot who are the best players you've seen up close what have been some of the best sort of shots that you've seen up close. Oh right, I mean, for me, still Seve is the best player I've seen. I paired with him years ago, uh, working for Paul Casey. I think Paul's mentioned this one. I'm sure he has down the track. Um, probably the best shot I've seen from Seve, and we all like a Seve story. Uh, we're at Tenerife. First hole's a par five. Hit a second shot left on this par five up against a stone wall, which is an out of bounds wall, uh, and there's a cart path that is adjacent to that wall. He asks for a referee, gets a drop, but he has to drop it on top of the stone wall. He's allowed to get relief off the path, but he hasn't got a swing on the path, so he's allowed to drop it on top of the wall. So he drops it a couple of times because it's bouncing everywhere and places on top of it. Uh, and then he has to hit it, I don't know, 30 feet back up in the air, 40 yards from the flag, short-sided, of course. Yeah, no shot. Um, so he opens up his sand. It, it, frankly, it looked absurd, too, standing on this stone wall. Um <laughs> And, of course, yeah, a little sand iron buzzes it up there to about six, seven feet, knocks it into birdie, and gives us that look of, well, you expected me to do this, didn't you? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> the show-off, so, as Logue mentioned, the oh, show-off. Yeah, so, look, he's the complete best, I and mean, he was. I, I talked about Woosnam earlier, just the, the strike of a golf ball. The sweetness of the strike might be the best I've heard. You know, some, a long iron or a mid-iron was just uh, amazing. Um Jimenez out of a bunker or hitting a pitch shot. Uh, again, I saw that up close for a very long time. Um, just the way he delivers the club into the back of the ball and the, the predictability of how the ball's going to react once it's a green. He, he, he's never out of control when he hits a pitch shot or a bunker shot. Um, so he like might a be guy the best who got the most out of his game of anybody over a long period of time. He's actually incredibly talented. Um, he's, he's, he's the best guy to uh, watch practicing. I actually watched him practice at the Hong Kong Open two years ago. I did a one-off week with him. Um, I was meant to be going back to Hong Kong and 
uh, Miguel's caddy, uh, Cliffy, had injured himself. So I just did a one-off week um, and I had worked for him previously. And uh, I went up on the Saturday to go and watch him practice because he, uh, there's something about the way he goes about it that you can always learn from. And he gets every shot in the bag with every club. So every he doesn't get static with like a little draw or a little fade all the time. It's always because he worked with the ball. He, you know, he played, with a, played with a wound ball. So with a three iron, he did a little fade, a little draw and a straight one. And then a high one, a low one and the combinations. But then he'd do it with a five wood. He'd do it with an eight iron. He'd do it with a lob wedge. So he's preparing himself for pretty much every uh, situation that he might encounter on the course. So, yeah, to, to watch him do that and go through his short game stuff and uh, and then drink two bottles of red wine at lunch. <laughs> Smoke a cigar and then head to the first tee, yeah, ready to go. He's, yeah, he's, not, he's not bad to have a, an afternoon um, little session with. <laughs> he's, um, so, look, uh, he, he's wonderful for that. Um, got paired with Tom Watson last year. I worked for Peter O'Malley at the Seniors Open. And, I mean, Tom Watson was still, how old was he? He's, is he knocking on the door of 70? He must be close. He's amazing to watch, isn't he, even? Yeah. He came out to Australia a few years ago. I, I followed him around to the oh, lakes. 40. And, uh, yeah, it was magnificent. flight of the golf ball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, flights, he just flights just that little bit flatter, but it was the perfect shot and the perfect flight for the shots that were needed. The, the wedge game was brilliant. He's, he's putting it was still, he's putting like he was still 23 years old. It was aggressive. It was... Um, well, he just gets on with it too, doesn't he? Like that would have been a pretty quick round, actually, with with Pom and Watson. Uh, yeah, we've so yeah we've got sort of semi rain. Uh, there was a rain delay going into the last day, and we actually we weren't, we weren't going to play with them on the Sunday. The Saturday um, afternoon and Sunday morning was heavy rain, so they had to rejig the draw. We missed him by one group on the Saturday night. We're thinking, ah, oh, that would have been nice. You know, his last open. Um, all of a sudden, now we're in three balls, and we had to tee off the tenth tee. So he finished his last open, or his last seniors over his last chance, his last trip to Great Britain on ninth tee at Royal Lytham and St Anne's, which is probably not the ideal way, you know, place to do it. He'd rather do it in front of the nice clubhouse instead of the um, instead of St Anne's train station. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was um, it was a really really special day. Um, he and Pom, both two country boys who. Uh, Grew up on farms and owned farms. They uh, they were like two little kids talking about what sort of uh, livestock or crops or whatever they're growing in their farms. It was uh, it, it, a very special day, and what a man and what a player, what a player. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, did get to chat to him with about two holes to go. It was pouring down with rain. He didn't have a rain jacket on, and uh, said to him something like, um, "You're going to miss this, aren't you, mate?" And uh, he said something along the lines of, "I wouldn't have it any other way." Uh, just how we wanted to finish things off. Player who gets it. Um, yeah. Uh, definitely. What about Pom? What's your take on on Pom? Might be one of the – I heard uh, Dennis Pugh a couple of weeks ago on uh, the McKellar podcast with Huggin and Donegan saying that you talked about players not missing the middle of the club face and he was blown away by O'Malley's ability to strike the centre of the club face constantly. Would you put him in that class? Yeah, just so incredibly straight. Uh, he did driver on nearly every – Every hole, because uh, his rationale was, well, you, you can fit a golf ball down there, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it was driver on every hole. And, uh, well, and later in life it was, um, well, I have to drive it here, otherwise I'm not going to get up on this par four and two. Um, I think it was at the Oz but, a couple of years ago when they had the Australian Open there and uh, that first hole at the Oz, he had to go in with three wood. Mm. The guy's yeah. hitting nine iron and they're flying it across that bunker on the right-hand corner. And he was just in line with the start of it. 
uh, off the tee. Yeah. Three went into the green, which is quite remarkable. You would hit it dead straight. I worked for him for two weeks, Vic PGA in that Surf Coast Classic. Uh, and it was uh, – so that's six rounds because it was – Vic PGA was only three rounds. That was at um, – uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the Sand, course. Sands at Torquay? Um, no, it was uh, – no, it was in Melbourne, Vic PGA. Uh, it was at Sandhurst. That's it. Sandhurst. So – yeah, for six rounds, he was 33 under. Uh, he hit the ball like he always did his whole career, but he putted with his eyes closed for six ah, rounds. Ah, that period. Yeah, he um, yeah, took away the visual anxiety, and we, we looked at that thing, and God, if he had done this through the 90s or the 2000s, <laughs> he would You could have both retired. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, but look, a wonderful fella, very generous man. Um, uh, will do anything for you. Uh, he, um, yeah, he's got a heart of gold. Uh, yeah, I can't say enough good uh, good things about him, really. Um, As you said, and, and, and country boy. His pure golf game was just magnificent. And last one from me, best caddies. What makes a good caddy? Who are the best caddies? You mentioned a few that you'd sort of mentored you through the way. I saw Dave McNeely told an amazing story on that caddy <laughs> tales yesterday about turning up that front was- the day Nick Price shot 63 at Augusta. That was a fantastic story. And if you haven't had to listen to it, hunt it down. Oh, it's yeah, well worth it. But, uh, trying, to, trying to lay him up on 15 with a five-wood <laughs> short of the water and hitting it in there at 12 feet. Um, <laughs> Give me the hearty yeah. book. I can smell the booze coming out here. Yeah. Guys like – look, guys like Dave, I think you know, what makes a great caddy is it just – I remember asking some of the older guys, you know, how do you become a great caddy? And you know, the older guys would say, get yourself a good player because it effectively <laughs> makes you look great. And it does. And that it does make you look good. I mean, you, and if you're thrown in the situation of being in the last nine holes – over and over again, you're going to get used to how that feels. Um, so that that experience can't really be bought. Um, the other the other side of it is a great caddy will also get a, an average golfer or a golfer who's playing rubbish to either keep his card for the year or just get him through that week so he can make the cut. Some of the best caddying that you see, well, that I see, never get seen by anyone else because it'll be a guy who can see these players just struggling and can't do anything right and but still manages to get him around, and whether that's physically or mentally, um, to change their thinking, to suggest something about their, maybe not their swing, but let's just get a cut all the way around and just see if we can boot these par fives and, or whatever it might be. Just give the inspiration somehow. Some, for me, that's the best caddying that I can see. I look, and I'm, this is, you know, everyone's going to say people like Billy Foster, who is a brilliant caddy. Um, they, they have that skill set too, but there's a lot of unsung heroes who do a great job with, I'm not going to say with not a lot because it's not that, because they're all great players, but uh, under the stresses of trying to make a cup when they haven't made one for a few weeks or they haven't, uh, they're struggling to keep their card. That, that to me is superb getting. Yeah, it's uh it's a bizarre job, Adam. You're probably just used to it, and <laughs> you hang with the caddy, so it all seems quite normal. But it's a, yeah, it's a done bizarre a lot else, way yeah. to live from the outside. Yeah. And uh, full marks to all Couldn't of you. Wouldn't have it any other way. No, well, and uh, it, you make it sound very, very. Uh, you make it sound like a lot of fun and uh, and good stuff. It's been fantastic to chat to you today, mate. I don't think it'll be the last time we talk to you, but terrific to catch up. And we hope that you get back out there on course sooner than later, but more importantly, that health and all those sorts of things uh, stay good. But thanks for taking some time today, mate. Really appreciate it. I must be desperate because I bought a new set of clubs the other day. Well, not new. They were um, off eBay. So I, mean, I don't play golf anymore, but I must be missing it. What'd you get? <laughs> What'd you buy? Uh, oh, they're all non-conforming. I've got Ping I 2s, the illegal ones. Nice. Um, nice. The uh, copper, the, copper ones? or No, not the other. They cost me 50 quid for a set of irons, oh, so I couldn't say no. Yeah. Um, 
ERC2 driver. That's the uh, yeah, the trampoline face. I'm, I'm trying to get the whole non-conforming bag. <laughs> the non-conforming <laughs> classic. Fantastic. Yeah, no, because I've got a set of Mizuno blades stuck away somewhere too that I use yeah, and have the old classic clubs. I thought, no, bugger it. Let's go for the, the really dodgy stuff and play with that. I, I, don't think I'll play, I don't think I'll play any better or worse. No, that's well, my experience would tell you that. I've, I've experienced with a bunch of old clubs over the I'm years. I'm not good enough for that. Exactly. The, the fluctuations are exactly the same as with the latest equipment. So the, really the problem isn't the club. That's what we always come back to. It's no, the idiot at the end of it. Good luck with that. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you get to use them sooner than later. It uh, is all the best, boys. Yeah, hopefully you guys are going to be uh, playing a bit more golf as well soon too. Well, we're okay here in Sydney. It's the people yeah. in Melbourne. Who, oh, yeah, Sydney's okay. Victoria's, yeah. Victoria in the Northern Territory, and uh, there's been a couple of very vocal, high-profile people down in Victoria making their feelings known about that. Not necessarily yeah, to possible. the betterment of the game's image, but that's a whole other discussion. Exactly, and that's uh, that's why you don't engage with people like that. That's anyway. Right. For, for, <laughs> for another time. Thank you, my friend. Logue, a big thank you to you, as always. Uh, good to have you along, and I've still got that picture. I forgot you're a scarf wearer. This is what we miss with this social distancing. I forgot you, you get into the yeah. scarf. Not at home, I imagine. Uh, well, no, I could wear a scarf at home. We don't have great heating in in our place here. So, yeah, it's uh, outerwear and scarves and beanies and everything. It's all it's all okay in the, the Logue household. Ho- hopefully I'll get to see you in the studio with your scarf and your beanie on in the not-too-distant future. But thanks for taking some time today, mate. Really enjoy by as always. Thanks, Rob. Episode 30, done and dusted the Good Good Golf Podcast. But as always, we will be back to do it all again next week with episode 31 here at the Good Good Golf Podcast.